I really wanted to share this story because 90% of startups fail, but we really only hear the, the stories of the ones that work. And this creates a survivorship bias that then distorts the expectations of 90% of founders out there who then often feel alone and ashamed of not having been in the minority. And I just think that there should be more dialogue because you feel less alone when you know that others have also not worked. And we have this perception that people will like us more if we succeed and we achieve. But in reality, people tend to like us more when we are honest and genuine and we are vulnerable. And so I guess that's just this, this conversation is my attempt to be the kind of person I want to be proud of and to help others feel less alone. So Background information for listeners. Uh, I reached out to Megan uh, and I didn't know her before because I saw on LinkedIn uh, a post that she wrote uh, and it was about her difficult decision of letting go of her startup and her journey so far as an entrepreneur. And it was a really, I thought, very intense and very in-depth analysis of her situation. And it, and I thought it was very touching and very real, which is something that you don't often see on LinkedIn, where people almost always tend to showcase their, their wins. And so I reached out to Megan and I asked her, if she was willing to share her experience, you know, in building her startup and guide us through the process and do a little bit of a retrospective, because I think it's so much valuable for people that are going through the same process of building their own company. And she kindly accepted the invitation. And Megan, Let's start with your background, because before being a founder, you were an exceptionally well-positioned, successful product manager, right? So maybe we start there and you're, and then we move to the transition and your decision towards you know, building your own company. Right. So I'm originally from New York, and like any good New Yorker, I uh, decided to study finance and work on Wall Street. That's how I started my career. But I realized quickly that wasn't the right path for me. And I had the opportunity to join Microsoft at the time and for something they called the Microsoft Academy of Undergraduate Hires. And so I joined them as a technical program manager and in their consulting arm, and I moved out to the West Coast to San Francisco. I realized at that time that I liked working in tech. I liked the power of putting a product in somebody's hands and seeing them use it for better and for worse. But I, I didn't love being on the corporate ship um, where I felt like it was really difficult to trace a line of my impact to someone who benefits. And so like any good uh, millennial transplant living in San Francisco back then, I jumped to a seed stage startup, a B2B SaaS startup. And that was where I first got into product by accident, kind of self-taught and lucky to have been mentored by some really great people. And I worked in a number of other small uh, startup roles in the product position. And after some time, I realized that I really wanted to learn what everybody was talking about and working at scale and working on experimentation. 
And when my personal life brought me to move to Barcelona in 2017, I, I used that as a chance to start new because back then it was much harder to decouple the work you did from where you worked, right? Before many remote opportunities were on the table. And I joined Skyscanner, excuse me, one of the world's biggest um, flight search companies. I joined as a product manager on their car hire team. And that's really where I got to cut my teeth in experimentation, learning from folks in technical disciplines. And I was really happy there would have likely stayed longer, but N26 from where you're based in Berlin opened an office here in Barcelona and offered me a head of product role leading like seven product teams and half of their monetization efforts. And I thought I would regret not trying to take that kind of leap and do something at a bigger scale uh, for my own personal growth. That journey was not too long. I left for a couple of reasons, mostly from my own introspection about what I wanted to do and what impact I wanted to have. And then I, I went to Hotjar. And I worked at Hotjar initially as a director of product, leading seven product teams. But I moved into the VP of product role within, I don't know, like eight or nine months. And then I started to lead product management, design, user research, and all of the data practice. So a team of about 50 within my direct reporting line. And I had an incredible ride there. I was part of the executive team that eventually sold the company to Content Square. So that was the first time I was ever part of a major acquisition from a leadership position. <laughs> and after that, the entrepreneurial call just grew louder and louder. And that's what initially led me to say, okay, I could keep continuing and growing in this direction and product, but I really need to see if I can make it as a founder. And so I made that choice to to change course in spring of 2022. And and yeah, then, like you said, I recently shut things down, but that's kind of how I got to now. Walk me for your transition from being this very successful product manager towards being a founder. Like, what was your mental process? Like, how did you approach it? And how did you got started? Uh, so what were the first very specific action that you decided to take uh, when you embarked on this, this journey? Like your founding team, for example, picking the right idea. So there are many founders who know in their bones that they're meant to be entrepreneurs and what they go on to create is less important than the fact that they know that that's the direction they need to move their life. I am unlikely one of those founders, one of those people. I instead fell in love with a problem that I was living and breathing at work. And then it started to consume my headspace on my nights and weekends. And I spent my free time validating that other people face this problem. And after six months of doing that, I wrote up all of my findings while I was still in my role at Hotjar. And this, I called it the really long one pager. It was a Notion doc that just outlined, okay, here is the lay of the land as I see it in terms of what, what I was trying to solve, which is team design challenges. So here's how people struggle with current org charts, um, current reporting lines, visibility into cross-functional teams, recognizing ownership of who owns this product, who owns this part of the tech stack. And so it's in my nature, whether founder or product person, to, I don't know, find a problem, get curious, and then go try to understand it. And so that's exactly what I did. So my, my journey from product leadership to founderhood is really just that I started doing customer discovery about something I had a hunch that other people might find really challenging. I validated that that was true. I 
put all my learnings in this really long one-pager doc. I think if you were to print it out, it would be like six pages long. And, and that's too long. Like this is, that's not a, that's not a good measure, but it's, it was a lot of information and, and I passed it on to a contact of mine who is an investor. And so I, throughout my career, I built relationships with other leaders, other executives, and, and that includes a network of, of investors as well. So I had this contact in London, his name's Pietro. He is so wonderful and I respect him to no end. And after he read this really long one pager, he's like, Megan, you should do this. You should, this is a problem. You validated enough for me. This is all I need to see to know that you're the right, per that this problem exists and you're the right person to solve it. And that it's a really huge one. So if we solve it well, it'll take us really far. And so with that confidence, just hinging on <laughs> what one person said, but after having validated this problem space with like 60 people, I did. I told my boss at Hotjar, our CEO, that I needed to answer this entrepreneurial calling and that that I needed to find my way out of the business and we needed to put a ramp down plan together. And that's exactly what we did. And so I had an investor before I had a customer, a team, a co-founder. I had an investor before I had anything. And I really that really mattered to me because it was someone I had known for years. We had built trust, we'd built a relationship. And his confidence was really what I needed to, to get started. Couple of follow-up questions into this. So first of all, what was the problem that you were trying to solve? That's question number one. And question number two is what was exactly, if you remember, in the in this one page that actually was like six pages? So the problem that I was looking to solve, I would describe as the team design problem or the people pu puzzle problem. In organizations of, let's say, at least 150 people, keeping track of who works on what is really challenging. So that might mean, hey, I'm on the customer support team. I heard a, a customer is really not happy with the new feature we launched. Who owns this feature? Answering that question is very difficult in a company that's scaling or working at scale. And so I see that as one side of the coin, which is what I call the who owns what problem. The other side of the coin is more from the leadership perspective of how should we organize? Hmm, we have these new goals. They might require us to collaborate in different ways. We have to make different trade-offs on, I don't know, should the brand team be part of uh, marketing or should it be part of design? Um, should design be its own discipline or should it be part of product? And a lot of these things about planning the organization forward, not just from a goals perspective, but how you're actually organizing your talent um, is really challenging as a leader. It takes up a huge part of the job. A lot of that time isn't even valued and considered part of the job, but it is it's huge. Like at Hotjar, when I joined, we were there were seven product managers. By the time I left, we had 20 I had to sit down for countless hours and figure out what are the right roles we should hire to reach our goals, who's best suited for them that already works here, and then what kind of roles need to be created in order to achieve those goals. Oh, and who's going to be best suited for those roles that we don't even have yet. And so as a leader, you're constantly trying to create this puzzle and then fill in the pieces on the fly as your goals are evolving. That's one side. And then the other side, like I said, is the everybody in the company trying to navigate who actually works on what, who actually owns certain things. So I thought these two things are inherently connected and there's no easy way to do it. So I don't know at the time I was like, I don't know what the solution is, but I know 
the way that it's currently being solved is a, a mix of, you know, I have a Miro board or a fig jam with a kind of diagram of cross-functional teams, but then I have a spreadsheet that lists every single person in the organization and maybe some sensitive things like composition of performance. That's only something the leadership team's using. And then you also have, of course, your HR tools, which are going to show you reporting lines and org charts, but that doesn't help you when there's an API data and you need to figure out who owns it, right? So you have this mix of this Frankenstein mix of different products where you're managing the relationships between people, products, technology, and then it's super manual and time consuming to update it. <coughs> Excuse me. So, so what this really long one pager did was it goes into detail. The problem is how should we organize? Who owns what? Here's how it's currently being solved. Let me show you some screenshots from real people at real companies who are confronted with this every day. Here's what I think we should do instead. And here's how I would get started. That's essentially what the long one pager was. It was everything in a pitch deck except for the big market sizing stuff and you know showing off the, the, the founders because I didn't have co-founders yet <laughs> or I didn't know how to do a market sizing either at that time. Okay, so let's follow through those, those points. How did you approach, first of all, finding the right co-founders? Because this is like a big problem. Because you mentioned you had an investor before you had anything, right? Uh, which includes uh, your team. So how did you, did yeah. you went about this challenge? And then how did you assess the market uh, sizing? So to find my co-founders, I knew that I did not want to co-found something with people I had not yet known or worked with. I wasn't really interested in a blind date, if you will. And so I kind of spun through my Rolodex of who I worked with in the past that I would love to work with again. And that led me to a couple different people, including my co-founder, Mark, who eventually, who eventually joined me. We worked together at Skyscanner, both at the time as individual contributors on the same team. So we knew what it was like to work together. And uh, he had grown into an engineering leadership role, leading a team of, I don't know, 50, 60 engineers. So I felt like, okay, I know from working together that he can, he can, he's great technical uh, abilities. And I knew from what he went on to do after that he was um, a competent leader. And so, so I managed to convince him over the course of a few months, it was the right time in his life uh, to try something. And what I didn't expect was bringing on Stephanie. Stephanie was my longtime friend. Um, she's based in, in Paris, and she uh, was the VP of marketing at Spendesk. She had joined them really early stage when they were something like 15, 20 people. We knew each other back from San Francisco and um, had known each other socially and had kind of, I would say she was my career crush. We, we constantly would like bond over professionally related things other than like that and workout classes. That was kind of a, the core of our of our friendship. And at some point I just told her, Hey, I'm looking to do this. And I've actually already resigned. I've already tendered my resignation. So I'm doing this and I would love to, you know, work with you from a marketing and brand and growth and all of these things that I suppose I didn't believe I had the core competencies to do. And so, so Steph decided to join as well. So it was a great surprise to Pietro because he said, like, you know, we'd always prefer to to fund a co-founding team rather than a solo founder. Um, but he didn't expect that I would come back with with as amazing and talented uh, co-founders as I did. <laughs> okay, so that's for funding your co-founder. And I guess that if you worked 
are ready together, especially it's it's much easier. How did you answer yeah. instead market sizing problem? I found the market sizing exercise really, really challenging because it requires piecing together so many assumptions. And I think that's a, actually a really good metaphor for the whole founding experience. <laughs> I should have recognized throughout that part of the putting the pitch deck together that that everything was just going to be extremely ambiguous from that point forward. So what I did was I basically looked up different industry growth trends. I, you know, tried to find the most adjacent categories I could, whether that was HR tech or team collaboration software. And yeah, I just pieced together a ton of assumptions on, you know, the typical kind of TAM, SAMSOM, total addressable, serviceable, and so forth. And and tried to paint a real like a, a picture that was big and punchy enough for investors to to take notice and to care about, but not so absurd that it would break my own logic. And so my my market sizing slide included 32 different footnotes of all of the data sources that I used to piece together that market sizing data. And as a product leader, mostly at organizations at scale, that's the kind of analytical rigor that I expect of myself when I'm working at scale is to have an answer to everything and to be able to say, yes, of course, this estimate was provided by uh, Statista in 2023 on blah, blah, blah. In the, <laughs> raising a pre-seed round, that level of scrutiny was not necessary. That's also a good indication of the fact that I had a lot of unlearning to do as a founder to try to really, really reduce my bar for analysis and to get much more comfortable just saying, okay, I think we should go left, not right, instead of, I think we should go to these GPS coordinates. Yeah. Talk me a bit more about that. Like, how is uh, being a product manager different from being a founder? So you mentioned you had a lot of unlearning to do. What were specifically those unlearning and the things that you needed to get comfortable with? As a product manager in a later stage company or a product leader, your bar for taking risk is usually a bit lower because there's a lot at stake. As a founder, you need to have a really, really high bar for risk because that's the only thing you have is true. It's true, the parable about the only thing you have is speed as your advantage. Because if you don't take big risks and you take time to iterate, you will literally not learn enough to keep you in business fast enough. So I think it was the pace of, it, the pace was different and the risk tolerance was different and also the quality bar for my own work. Like I, I like to think, and I hope that those who've worked with me in the past would agree that I hold myself to a really high standard. It means that my communications are really polished. It means that my product strategy is very well researched and cited and rooted in market data, rooted in customer anecdotes, rooted in sales intel, rooted in so many things. As a founder, you just you don't have those things because you don't have a sales team who's making reports for you. You don't have a customer success team who's helping you understand the best path to upsell. Like you just you're making everything from from scratch and that's a that's a degree of being a beginner that I hadn't experienced probably since I was a beginner. You mentioned that everything that you do is deeply rooted in research. So walk me through the process of doing market validation research for your product. Like 
who was your ideal customer? Who did you who did you contact and uh, interview to do customer discovery, for example? How did you decide to move from problem to solution space? So my customer discovery was one of the things that I did early on was I made this kind of token exercise in in like a fig jam board. So I had, I think it was six different problems <coughs> that could potentially be solved around the challenges that I've described earlier. And then I would meet with people who I thought were my ICP and ask them, okay, if you have 10 coins or 10 tokens and there's these six problems, first of all, are any problems missing from this board? Usually the answer was no. And then the question after that was, okay, you have only 10 tokens. How, where would you put each of these tokens to prioritize which problems get solved for you? And so that's what I did early on to kind of narrow down the scope of what it was that we were trying to do. However, what we did then was we, we, I think we took that too literally. We went and solved those problems with including customers and a handful of design partners along the way. But I think one of the biggest challenges that we faced in building our own solution at, at first was that we assumed people would, people would input more data into the product so that it could function well and solve their problems. And we, we underestimated the extent to which people had, I called it SaaS fatigue, like, oh my God, not another SaaS tool. Because it turns out that their willingness to get started and what they initially invested in the product was really, really minimal. And so therefore, all of these cool things that we built to solve the problems that they told us were important couldn't really be solved if the customer didn't have enough skin in the game. And so that's one of the biggest mistakes I think we made. And we also tried to pitch that, pro we also pitched that product for a couple of months before we started to realize, okay, this is not the right path. The, the activation point is way too far away. The aha moment is even further away. Like we, we were, what we built is not fast enough in a time to value to get people to what they want at first. And our focus on like, people's ultimate problems led us too far down a path of a robust product with many features instead of, you know, fast time to value, quick, easy, see, see what works and then come back and fill it in over time. This is very interesting. You mentioned something that is stuck on my mind that the aha moment was way too far in the life cycle of the, of the product. And the activation moment uh, was way too too slow, basically. So once you realize that something is not working for the product, uh, like first of all, how do you measure it? So which metrics uh, did you had in place? Uh, you know, how did you measure it? And second, uh, how how did do you pivot? from something that you are already building. I don't know, you didn't explicitly say that, but by that point that you realized is, did you already have an MVP? Did you already, were you already marketing your solution? So I imagine that there were investment already going into the product, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. So by the time we realized this, I don't think it took too long. I think it was like two months of, of, I think I assumed that because I had never been a quota carrying salesperson that I wasn't good at sales. So I assumed that the problem was my pitch. And so that's what I kept fine tuning over time. And, and then I realized like, okay, actually it's probably not my pitch. And at that stage, even someone who comes from a background of working at scale like me, you realize very quickly that the only metric that matters is how many customer, how many people that you pitch are actually actually onboard, even bother onboarding. And we had about a dozen people go through onboarding and then after one or two logins, never return. And so it became very, like, I remember stuff like that from being a very junior product manager and even then knowing like, yeah, okay, this is clearly not working. It's really easy to, it's really easy to see that and to admit that in any other role than, than ultimately being the founder who came up with it, especially one with a product background. So, so no, I think what was great is that as a team, we weren't afraid to make a change. So once we allowed ourselves to say that out loud, like, hey, yeah, okay, this isn't working. People are not really coming back after they've onboarded and very few that we actually pitch and do a demo are even onboarding in the first place. So what should we do? Oh, let's scrap the product. So we started from scratch. We made this product much, much simpler. And then that still wasn't working. I won't take you through every single step because it'll be like a 10 hour discussion, but there was a continuous change then from, okay, this product isn't working. What have we learned? What are we going to do next? Are we targeting the right people? And so we changed our product to like starting from scratch. I think that was three times or four times. And we changed our idea of our ICP at least as many times. And every step of the way, I would keep a running document of like, bet that we tried, who we tried to serve. Why did it not work? And those are the things that in our investor updates every month I would share. And I would say, okay, this didn't work. This didn't work this didn't work. Like we went from a team picture, like a team wiki in Notion that's connected to an HR tool so that if you put someone's name, it it actually knows if they're employed or not because it's coming from the HR tool. We went from like a team wiki that looks like that to something that looks like a Miro board with that HR integration. And you could like make scenarios of teams, you know, scenario A is we have a, I don't know, three product teams. Scenario B is we have two sales teams, so forth. So we went from the team wiki to the kind of team design canvas, to an embeddable widget within Notion. We focused first on product and engineering leaders, then on HR folks, then on operations, then on product operations. Like we just cycled through. And the good, (coughs) what I'm really proud of is that we, our cycle times increased so much. We would basically say, okay, this isn't working. Here's what we learned. Let's do this next. And then I would, my co-founders and I would line up the next set of people that we could do a demo to to that new ICP or something like that. And then and then we would have all of those demos scheduled so we knew that we were on a timeline to finish this new product in time to actually demo them and make sure that it worked. And also the fidelity of what we built improved a lot as well. So we stopped building features that worked perfectly and were actually like you know, with unit tests and like connected to the back end. And we started just building enough to do a demo to see if people wanted what we demoed before we actually built it in a production worthy quality. And so that was something our investors constantly told us, like, you guys are doing really well in terms of 
learning faster and faster, changing faster and faster, and making sure that the quality bar isn't too high, that it takes you a long time to to actually build this new thing. Okay, let me take a step back, because I feel like we went into acceleration mode. And instead, I want to ask you a rapid set of uh, fireside questions before we get back to sure. the pivot uh, moment. So first of all, and I'm sorry for listeners if we're jumping uh, back and forth uh, between different problems uh, and between different scenarios, but I feel like it deserves the right type of attention. Um, Going back to the discovery for one second, when you were doing validation and try to determine your ICP, um, how many people did you talk to and was a qualitative interview the only math uh, problem validation that you that you use or did you use something else some other methodology yeah i mean initially when we set the icp as product and engineering leaders in soft i think it was soft let me start over we initially set the icp as product and engineering leaders in scale ups with at least 150 employees that was based on probably 60 to 70 interviews, maybe more. I don't think it's necessary to be that many, but like I said earlier, I had I had spent a lot of my free time. I made basically no free time in my life <laughs> so that I could validate these things before I quit my job. And so a lot of the initial ICP was guided by that. And and also looking at who actually control who who had a really heavy influence over spend. So product and engineering leaders in scaling companies can typically, yeah, they typically have budget to buy the tools that they need, right? So other disciplines often face a lot bigger hurdles in getting approval for spend. And so we wanted to, yeah, go where we knew the problem was hot and go where we believed that there would be willingness to to buy and, and the autonomy to do so. From that point, when we would change our ICP throughout that, because you mentioned the pivot, but the thing is there were many pivots. So like through each of those subsequent pivots, our bar for making those decisions became lower and lower. And I think that's what we needed to do to not just like keep running in a direction we knew wasn't working. And so we would probably make decisions of like, okay, let's let's change the ICP to someone in HR because they hold the keys to the kingdom of the HRIS and that integration is critical. So we want their support. We also don't want HR folks to feel alienated from the org design and team design process, which often happens. And the you know, HR folks often feel like they're told what changes are gonna come when it comes to headcount instead of being included for the journey. So we wanted to celebrate that they were there with us. And so we probably had no more than 10 conversations with like a chief people officer or so forth before we decided, okay, let's go in this direction and see what happens. Okay. Um, again, going uh, a step back, uh, when you onboarded the first people uh, to the first version of the MVP, right? Uh, so how did you do it? Were those, I don't know, personal connection in your network? Uh, did you ask for money for it? Or do you simply, you know, allow a beta, free beta or alpha um, use of the product uh, just to gather the first feedbacks? Yeah, we had, we relied mostly on our personal network, which probably got us the first, I don't know, 50 to 100 demos. 
with product and engineering leaders. And initially it was a private beta. So the commitment we were asking for was not to pay us from day one. It was to work with us to design a product that they would buy. And in exchange, they would agree to do a case study about how our product was valuable to them. Obviously only if that was true. So that was what we asked for in the beginning. But we, yeah, I'll leave it there and you can decide where you want to go. Okay. That. So that's for the initial part, the initial MVP. But then there were several pivots from that moment. Um, were those we executed within the same companies or did you try to onboard uh, and go after new ones because you had uh, new ICP? That's a good question. We It was a bit of both. There was a bit of both like, oh, you know, from a product engineering leader, oh, I uh, I thought this could be really useful, but now that I'm using it, I recognize I shouldn't, this is not something I want to do in isolation. So let me bring in my HR partner from the people team. Like you should go talk to them. And then it became a sort of a dance of like trying to bring these people together and make sure that each of them had their own needs met from what we were building. But something really important to keep in mind is the timing of all of this. We started building in June of 2022, we then launched a the private beta along with a waitlist where we could get signups from people at different companies in November of 2022. And I don't know if anybody out there recalls, but Q3 of 2022 is really where things started to change in the market. So we've talked a lot about what we've done internally and, and the approach that we took. But, but this was also at a time where budgets were being slashed left and right. And so we had a number of conversations where people were like, oh, I can't wait to get started. This is going to be amazing. And the next week, that person was laid off. And so there was a constant need to, okay, reset expectations. This isn't really going in the direction we expected. But we also knew that, that was there were a lot of things that were a lot of things within our control, but a lot of things also outside of our control. So we found that we found that like it was just really difficult to get people to commit to trying something new when they had to slash their budgets, stop using products that they were already paying for, start using Excel uh, and spreadsheets for like many, many more things because they had to cancel a bunch of SaaS tools. And the layoffs meant that a lot of our contacts and a lot of the folks that we thought we would serve and, and were working with throughout the beta weren't able to champion that because they were just lucky to even keep their job if they kept it. Wow. Yeah. That was a very intense period. Walk me through the review process, meaning all those pivots that you, you did. Did you add regular, I don't know, review and decision-making points? So that you were saying, for example, Every, you know, we will, we will launch something new, we will wait a couple of months, uh, and we would uh, decide what to do, right? Walk me through the process of these uh, review and, and pivot type of decision making. What did it look like? Yeah, I, I would basically keep track of how many demos did we do? How many people did we onboard? How many people that we onboarded actually came back and logged in? And then how many people who came and logged in actually did something in the product? And then, I mean, we were 
too small to need like a monthly all hands to go through this stuff. We would just share on the fly, like, okay, this is what we saw this week. This is what happened. You know, it was very on the fly because I think that's the right pace for being such early stage. And then, yes, we would definitely announce, okay, this isn't working. This is the direction we think. What do you, what does everyone think? Uh, there was a little bit more democracy in, a, in an early stage place because it's not that many people, that many opinions to rally. And also like a lot of the times anybody could, would join one of these demos. So I, you know, I was typically one of the founders leading the demos almost always, but anybody from the team could join any, any customer conversation so that they could really feel like they're plugged in as well. You basically just have, oh yeah, look at my calendar. There were 26 demos. Here's how they went. Here's the, you know, we would constantly say, okay, of these 26 demos, here's the the best feedback we got. Here's what's missing to close the gap. Uh, makes sense. I guess like one curiosity is that as a founder, when you start on this journey, you have one vision, right? Uh, a sort of mission or things, uh, you know, that you want to see realized in real life. But then there is uh, what people actually say that they they want. So like the customer feedback. So I'm very curious, uh, how do you strike the balance between being true to your vision as an entrepreneur and instead pivoting uh, as you did uh, based on customer feedback, even though it means that your vision also change. So in the very beginning, the whole reason that I cared about this problem in the first place is because I think that organizational design is something that pretty much all leaders contribute to in some way, right? You figure out what roles you need to, to achieve certain goals. Ideally, you hire those roles. Ideally, you hire well. Ideally, you retain great talent. And that is all in the face of most companies, at least until recent times, championing that teams should be more diverse. And so I thought that if we could sign, if we could solve the team design problem, we could show people where they are meeting or falling short of their diversity goals. And also we should be in a position to set diversity goals in a way that is better than just the minimum or better than just looking at, oh, we need more women. Like I think fundamentally, I believe that if software is, as Mark Andreessen put it years ago, if software is eating the world and billions of people are using software, but that software isn't built by people who reflect all of those billions of people, then it's fundamentally biased and it's not built for everybody. And so I thought that if we could create something that in the short term, let's say one to three years, that's ambitious, probably closer to five years, solves the team design problem, then we can actually show you what the diversity of your teams looks like. And we can help you figure out what is a better goal? How do you level up? How do you do better? And how do you recruit and retain great people from all walks of life? Because I do not fundamentally believe that that is an HR challenge to figure out. When I was at Hotjar, that was part of my whole mission. And I recruited a huge part of our product team myself by doing the work, going on LinkedIn, spending hours finding candidates from underrepresented groups who might be great at the job, 
even if their profile looked different than the standard applicant, whatever that means. And, and I'm really proud of how that team shaped up and what I was able to change there. And that was always behind why I cared about the team design problem. To your point, it's true that the market will pull you in different directions. And of course, you have to listen to the market in a way. What I recognized early was that what we pitch in a sales conversation does not have to ring the bell of that vision every single time and you and like uniformly for every single person because as the market shifted downward i heard from a number of leaders look megan i just don't have time or money to care about diversity right now and that's that is that is real that is those are real words from real people and so i learned that i would need to change the pitch to things they did care about and even if they didn't share my why that's okay for the moment. It's still my why. Unfortunately, I grew really far away from that vision in terms of the product and in terms of what we did. And the market kind of pulled me in a direction to become this thing that didn't really mean anything to me in the end. And so it's no wonder that I wasn't able to sell it very well to, to people because I stopped caring about it when it turned into like a team integration platform that does nothing very meaningful. Yeah, I, I, I learned that I can't sell something I'm not passionate about. And I learned that you can lose passion when the market pulls you really far away from your mission. If you were to do it uh, again right now, how would you solve uh, that balance uh, for a different problem, maybe, or maybe the same problem? How would you go about solving that same balance? Because I think this is a super relevant problem for many founders, and it's something that I spend also some time thinking about. There's so many things I would do differently that it's challenging to come up with one. Like we often look for the smoking gun for just one thing that went wrong or one thing we do differently, but I would do so many things differently. I guess the top of that list are that I would validate people's willingness to pay for a product before I raised any funding. I know that sounds so basic, but... In the moment, I, like many others, got swept up in the, you can fundraise, so you should fundraise, rather than I leaned on qualitative customer research, but I never leaned on actual sales to validate to me that this problem was worth solving to more people than just me. And that's fundamentally what I would do most differently. I don't know that it's very relevant for the, I mean, actually, it is quite relevant, I think. In product management roles in the past, I made sure that people would be willing to pay for the product that I built before we built it further. I think as a founder, I I lost sight of that. Okay. How would you validate that, though? For a product that does not exist without the resources that you have at your back uh, as a product manager at Hotjar. So how would you assess willingness to pay? Oh, well, what I'm saying is that I've, next time... I would start selling. Like I would not be afraid to start asking for money instead of saying, give me a great case study or join my private beta. I would start selling from day one, which is something that many founders do. <laughs> and it's something that many founders advise me to do. And I think I, my nature was not conducive to that at that time. I think I was timid. I was not very confident about my ability to sell. I thought if I build the perfect product, I have a great network. I have investors rooting for me who are willing to make introductions. And I know that this problem is real. 
like eventually we'll be able to sell it instead of no I need to go and sell it from day one and then that's you know I think <clears throat> having worked in having worked in later stage companies for most of my career on the product team there's often a bitterness toward folks on the commercial side who sell things that don't exist and one of my learnings from being a founder is to have a lot more empathy from the people who are skilled enough to sell solutions to problems and to sell a future um, that could be better and mutually beneficial and to try to work better with folks in commercial disciplines so that it's less of a, oh my God, can you believe they sold that? And it's more like a, oh, clearly there's demand for this. What is the fastest way then we can meet that demand? I think it's helped me mature a lot in my outlook on the relationship with commercial sides of the business. <clears throat> and yeah, I would just, I would just start selling earlier. So if I, 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 I think I would have a long-term entrepreneurial calling. I don't think I'm ready for it again immediately after this, but I would take that fundamentally different approach. It's the only validation lever that you really have as a founder is, can I sell a future vision and will people take a bet on me that I'll come through? Yeah. Makes sense. We're, we're touching on these, but can you walk me through your your decision to shut the company down? If you were to, you know, walk back through your thinking process at the time, what would it look like? So I, oh, okay, we're starting. In summer of 2023, my co-founder Stephanie decided to leave and that was a really hard thing to accept, especially since I mentioned we had been friends for a long time. After she left, I realized how much chemistry she created among the team and how much magic she brought. And she really motivated me on a daily basis to keep going. Honestly, she motivated me more than I probably let her know back then. And, and when we were unable to sell, we were losing, people were losing interest in what we were building. My other co-founder, Mark and I, we decided to call it on the product and vision that we initially decided. And we told our investors and we told them that we were going to set out on a like six week journey to try to find a new problem. And I thought at the time, wow, we're in such a privileged position. Like we are still a very talented team. We are funded. We have runway to last us quite some time. It's just that the product we chose and the market we chose didn't work. So, or, and also there's a huge element of humility here. Maybe others could do a different job and maybe it will work, right? Maybe it's the way that we solved the problem that didn't work. So I, I totally recognize that we, <laughs> our own efforts played a huge role in it not working. At that point, we took a few weeks to ask ourselves, what is it that we really care about? What is it that presents a commercial opportunity that the market needs right now? And I went on this path of trying to find my ikigai. Uh, it's a Japanese concept about the intersection of what are you good at? What do you love? What can you be rewarded for? And what do you believe society needs more of? Through that exercise, which I probably, you know, spent a couple weeks journaling and asking myself hard questions, 
I realized that the question was no longer what should we build next, but the question was what should I do next? And without chemistry and magic that Steph gave on a day-to-day basis, I recognized that for the previous year and a half, I had done my very best to be a good steward of my team's trust, my co-founder's trust, my investor's trust, and of course, my investor's capital. And I realized that the best thing to do was not to go on a long existential journey while burning through my investor's capital, because I wasn't even sure that I wanted to be on that founder path with investor money in a bank account. And so I met with my investor, Pietro, (coughs) my investor Pietro, who I mentioned earlier, and he said something very wise in just a few words, which was, you don't get an award for spending the last dollar. And I took that to mean, you don't have to spend all of it or burn through all of it just for me. Like you don't get anything at the end of that line if it doesn't materialize in in product market fit. (laughs) And so I decided that shutting down was really the best way to start the next chapter because I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a founder. I mentioned in the very beginning that I'm not someone who has to be a founder. I'm more someone who has to solve a problem I really care about. And so since I didn't know what that problem was anymore, it was better not to waste, yeah, investor money and the rest of my team's time to ask myself really big questions. Thank you for... uh for sharing that. Uh, um, I think it's very brave. Be so open and so candid about why you made that decision. You mentioned that there are quite a list of things uh, you will do differently if you were to start again in your entrepreneurial journey journey with these or with uh, another problem to solve. And the first one that you mentioned is uh, assess immediately willingness to pay for the product. But I wonder... What are the other things, uh, big or small as well? Oh, I would, next time, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll like push myself forward into the future because I think there will be a next time. I think it'll just take me a while. So next time I will, I will not hire a team until I have a customer, a paying customer. I will not raise funding until I have a paying customer. I will make sure that what that customer or customers pay for is a vision of the future we can both agree on so that I can continue building toward it and not get distracted from it. I will build as little product as humanly possible to make that first sale. I will bring folks on the team who are excited about what the early stage journey looks like in terms of going outside their lanes, meaning no clear job description. I will get a sales coach earlier. I did that last time, but I did it quite late. And I think, interestingly, didn't expect this, but I think I will make sure that I work in person because I also started the company remotely and after having come from Hotjar, which was a remote native company for some nine years now, I was convinced that remote can be done and you can build an excellent company and a great brand and a wonderful team remotely. 
And I believe that that's true, but I also recognize now that it's a lot harder than it looks when you join something that's already working as an employee because I tried to take cues from Hachar's playbook and I realized, fuck, it's not a playbook. It's actually just like the whole thing is a bit of alchemy and and I miss working in person after being remote since, well, pretty much everybody with the start of the pandemic. So I want to work around human beings again and be social and just be out there in the world. Megan, we are approaching the end of the interview. Based on everything you have learned uh, in the past uh, couple of years of being a founder, trying to launch this product, find a product market fit, and this kind of product market fit kind of eluded your effort. Uh, what would you what would you suggest or what would be the biggest takeaway that you feel like you would like to share with other founders of early stage companies? So throughout this process, when I just started, when I had decided to wind things down, I read this book called The Right Kind of Wrong, which is a scientific look at failure. And the author, Amy Edmondson, is a professor at Harvard who breaks failure down into really meaningful definitions, which helped me not feel ashamed of myself and in fact made me proud. I would say that even though this didn't work, I'm still really proud of myself because the reality is most people don't try. And I did. And I can sleep really well knowing that I tried. I tried everything I could possibly think of at that time. And I tried to stay humble throughout. I've ended this much more humbly than I could ever imagine. But if it's helpful for anybody who listens to this, there are three types of failure. One is basic. That's I dropped a glass and it broke, right? Not much complexity going into that. The next is complex failure, which is that many things have to go wrong. That is like the Challenger space mission, unfortunately, where lives were lost and people, many failures happened at the same time, the odds of which were very low, but it happened. And then there's something called intelligent failure, which is essentially what happens when you are trying something completely new and there is no proven way to have a successful outcome. And it requires that what you're doing is novel, untried, untested, um, no rule book, no nothing. And you fail not because you looked in the wrong direction and you dropped your glass or because of a coincidence that many things went wrong at the same time. It's more that you just are in completely new territory trying to prove something out. And in the book, there's this little questionnaire, like the five questions you can ask yourself to understand if your failure was intelligent or not. (laughs) It's a good growth loop for that book, I think. And I'm really, my takeaway from this whole thing is just like, I'm proud that I tried. I wish the outcome were different, but I can sleep at night knowing that I gave it everything I could and that I'm sure it will inform whatever I do next and after that. And, and I also had a, I, I mean, I had a, I learned that my husband and I were expecting our first baby three weeks after I signed the term sheet for my investment. So that was also going on alongside all of this. So I have an 11 month old baby now. And one day when she asks me, you know, what is our space? Why are there so many stickers and t-shirts that say our space on it? I can tell her that I really tried very hard to start something 
and then it didn't work so I continued on with and then obviously I'll fill in the blank for whatever that looks like next. Megan, you are indeed very brave. I want to thank you so much <laughs> for sharing your story so openly with uh, with listeners uh, without uh, fears or, or filters and I believe this is uh, a truly invaluable conversation Thank where you. can listeners uh, find you and uh, if you feel like sharing what's uh, what's next for you uh, you can find me on LinkedIn the other social media things I tend to not do very much on what's next is making use of all that work I did with the Ikigai exercise so I don't have a concrete answer but It will surely be a decision based on my values, my opportunities for growth, and hopefully hopefully the chance to learn from some really humble people who have done things I haven't yet, and hopefully a place where I can help them learn from things I've done that they haven't. Let's see. Megan, thank you so much. And thank for you. listeners, uh, we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It will be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.